The book that I'm holding in my hands has an ambitious title. It was written by Haddon W. Robinson. This is the second of three now editions. It says on the front that more than 200,000 of these books are in print. If you sell 200,000 books, you've done something in life. (laughs) And the ambitious title is Biblical Preaching, The Development and Delivery of Expository Messages. And you're wondering... What does that have to do with us? I want, you to, I want to read to you Dr. Robinson, who through this book and through his example and the help of other people he taught, helped me a great deal learn how to preach, and I'm still learning. I want, you to, read, I want to read to you the dedication of this book. To the men and women who keep a sacred appointment on Sunday morning, Bewildered by seductive voices, nursing wounds life has inflicted upon them, anxious about matters that do not matter, yet they come to listen for a clear word from God that speaks to their condition. In other words, he dedicated the book to you, who kept the sacred appointment on a Sunday morning. Cast off other priorities and other opportunities. We live in Southern California. You could be a lot of cool places this morning. But you kept the sacred appointment on a Sunday morning. Probably bearing some of the wounds he talked about. Not knowing it perhaps, but you probably have been worried about matters that do not matter. I know I have been. Sometimes just one night of sleep shows me that everything I worried about in the previous day didn't really matter that much. You've kept the sacred appointment and it matters. What we want to do now is hear a clear word from God. That was the intent of his textbook. He's with the Lord now, but he taught two, maybe three generations of preachers how to preach faithfully what the text of the Bible actually says. That's all I want to do this morning. The sermon I know from preaching it the first time at 9 a.m. is countercultural. Some of you may find it painful. I hope all of you find it encouraging to walk more closely in God's path. You shouldn't hear a note of harshness or condescension or impatience. Not for a moment. Not from me. I'm your fellow struggler and your fellow student in everything I ever opened the Bible to teach to you. It's something I'm still learning and trying to learn and often failing to obey myself. But we're coming now to the end of a four-week series on the will and the wisdom of God. It's been very encouraging. Thank you for your encouragement regarding this series. It's been very nice to get your feedback, both from what I've taught and what Pastor Jim taught last week. Of the four sermons, this perhaps might be the most difficult, the, less, the least interesting of all, because it invites you not to know one specific thing, but to do something that is much harder, something that takes much longer, and that is to cultivate wisdom. I want to show you how to grow wise from a single chapter in the book of Proverbs. In introducing the series to you several weeks ago, I told you that wisdom is like strength. It can be gained. Any healthy person can be much stronger than they are today if they so choose but it can't be gained quickly. You can't grow strong in a week. You can grow stronger in several months. You can become, at least to your own eyes, unnaturally strong over the course of several years. That's what young athletes like my sons discovered. Young athlete is serious about going as far as his genetics and coaching will take him. Almost all of them choose to get stronger. They make an appointment with the strength coach. They buy a book They make an appointment that they keep several times a week over the course of years. And only then through diligent practice, through trusting that eating and sleeping and lifting time after time after time would make them strong, do they suddenly realize that they actually are. That's what wisdom is like. Wisdom is very much like strength. It can save you from injury. It can take difficulties and make them far less than they otherwise would have been had you been, say, 
weaker, or in the case of wisdom, more foolish. In Proverbs chapter 1, the book of the Bible dedicated actually specifically to wisdom, you're going to hear Solomon dedicate his book and then take his son aside and begin specifically and practically to teach him. Please open your Bible with me to Proverbs chapter 1 and we'll begin reading in verse 1. This is a different kind of literature if you haven't read much of it. The Bible is not a single book. It's more like a library. It is one cohesive book that tells God's story, but God in telling his story put all kinds of different writings in his book, the Bible. This is poetic literature. This is specifically wisdom literature. In other other words, it's going to be filled with word pictures. And for you to get the point, you're going to have to see the picture and understand what the picture and the drama is meant to convey to you. It's written, as it says in the very first verse, by Solomon, the king of Israel. Solomon stood on the shoulders of his great father, the king and the warrior David. Solomon enjoyed wealth and far more peace than his father ever had in his lifetime. David had been a man of war. But God had used David to pacify Solomon's enemies for him. And now, for the first time really in the nation's history, someone has the privilege of sitting quietly and seeking after God. If you're familiar with his Old Testament story, Solomon was granted by God anything he wished, and what he asked for was wisdom. He became the wisest man, and on top of that, as part of God's further blessing, the wealthiest man in the world and... Sometime during his kingship, before his own foolish, foolishness tragically and ironically ruined his life, he sat down to write and to collect the Proverbs, the wise sayings of Israel. Read with me Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Here he's going to tell you what the Proverbs are for. To know wisdom and instruction. To understand words of insight. To receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple. Knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Would all of you read Proverbs 1 verse 7 with me? It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. I have a very simple sermon. I'm not sure Dr. Robinson would approve of it, but it's the best I can do with what he taught me. I want to walk you through Proverbs chapter 1 and show you in its three movements three things that you must know about wisdom. They're all countercultural. They're all humbling. If any of this sounds easy to you, I probably haven't uh, explained myself very well or you're overestimating your own abilities. Then at the end of the sermon, I want to give you three commitments you can make on the way toward wisdom for the rest of your life to live out the things that Proverbs 1 explains about wisdom. And having no better place to do it in the sermon, let me give you a simple suggestion to follow the rest of your life. Proverbs has 31 chapters. So beginning today, read the chapter of Proverbs that corresponds to the day of the month for the rest of your life. Let me see if I explain myself very well. Today is Sunday, November 14th. So this morning, trying to follow my own advice, I read Proverbs 14. And there I found some help. The sense of Proverbs is that much like strength, you don't know when you will need it. You don't know how it will help you and what it will rescue you from. You don't know what it will make you capable of doing until you actually have to apply it. That's why you have to seek it on a regular basis. Here then, first, is what you need to know about wisdom. The first part is the most humbling part. In these first seven chapters, as I read these together, as Solomon calls for Israel to pay attention, 
And he calls different kinds of people who are listening to him to read and to listen to what he has to say. I discover this humbling truth. Wisdom always comes from others. Wisdom never comes from you on your own. I'll prove it. You were born in abject ignorance. Just like me. Isn't it true? Do you remember the day you were born? You were there. In fact, you don't know much about your early life. Indulge me for a second. Think for a moment about your first memory. Dial back the clock and try to see if you can remember the first thing you can remember. Your first memory in life. Take just a second and try to think that through. Don't tell us aloud. It might get a little weird. Okay? You got it? How old were you? In the first service, I heard estimates from three to five years old. Now that's kind of humbling. The very earliest memories that most people have begin around the age of three or four. You've been alive on earth. A sentient human being made in the image of God. Eating way too much food and costing your family far too much money for years before you even have conscious memory of yourself. You were born into the world and didn't even realize it. You were yourself and didn't even know who you were. You bear the name that somebody else gave you. All of these things are just the very beginning of what Proverbs chapters 1 through 7 is trying to tell those who would grow wise. To grow wise, you must learn always from others. Any wisdom you develop will only be because of the things that you were first taught yourself. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 tells us humblingly that wisdom begins with God. Proverbs 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is a well-known biblical phrase, but because of the way many people were raised and because of the fathers that many people had, it communicates poorly in the modern world. The fear of the Lord, is that a cringing kind of fear? Is that the kind of fear that makes a kid's heart drop when he hears dad pulling up in the driveway? Not at all. Israel would have known exactly what Solomon meant. I need to explain it to you. This last song that we were just singing, Only a Holy God, that speaks of some of the things that God alone can do, His love, His faithfulness, His power, His absolute sacrifice in giving Himself, sending His own Son to die for people who had ignored Him, broken all of His rules, defied Him, ignored him, acted as if he didn't exist, or worse, abused his name, his memory, the very thought of him with their words and their actions. That kind of God, the Bible explains all through the Old Testament and continuing in the New, is so enormously great and powerful and good and righteous and strong that the only reasonable response to him is what Solomon here calls the fear of the Lord. In other words, a reverence so deep, being so overawed, so impressed, so admiring, that of course you're going to do what he says. It's not a cringing fear of retribution. It is the admiration that ordinary, frail, fallible, mortal people like us could be first made, then loved, and then sought, the New Testament tells us, at the cost of the life of Jesus, so that we who were rebels, who acted as if he wasn't even alive, as if God were a fairy tale, could be welcomed actually into God's family, and that God's very favorite way of explaining himself to us, the very essence of his being, is that of a father. And not the abusive or neglectful or angry or hair-trigger father that many of you had, but the father you always wanted. Wise and loyal and protecting, 
one who plans well in advance and makes provisions for his family so that his children are always blessed and taken care of. That is the essence of God. And Solomon explains both his love and the reverence that we owe to him because of who he is through this phrase, the fear of the Lord. It's being so impressed, so overawed in such admiration, so thunderstruck that you would be in a relationship with him, that of course you're going to do what he asks. Of course you're going to start with him. Of course you're not going to assert that you know, of course, better than father does. The fear of the Lord, Solomon says, is the, did you notice? What's the phrase? The the beginning of knowledge. Wisdom begins with God. That's where you begin. And if you're not sure of the existence of God, of course that doesn't mean you're unintelligent. You're made in God's own image. You were made to be loved and to enjoy him beginning now and continuing forever in the life that you hope you have that will continue forever. The life that people always speak of in funerals. I've done so many funerals and some people there very obviously have never had any interest in spiritual things. Some have told me, I'm not even sure why you're here, but then inevitably they start talking about grandpa looking down on us and grandpa playing cards with his old buddies and I know he's up there and doing what he does. Why does the human mind always go to eternity? Because according to the Bible, also the writings of Solomon, God has put eternity in our hearts. That troubled conscience of yours, that desire that you have to actually live forever, that wistfulness you feel when you realize that life is slipping away and you won't be here forever, God placed that in your heart and your conscience to tell you that you're separated from him, that you've actually broken his laws, but that he loved you so much that he will bring you back at the cost of himself. Knowing that knowing him. That's reality. Nothing else in our culture, no system of entertainment, of wealth, of producing what Americans call the good life will assure you or lead you on to a life beyond the moment you draw your own last breath. What all this means is that God wants you to use the conscience and the intelligence that he gave you to humbly turn from your sins and turn to him. Then you'll be in a relationship with someone that is more extraordinary than anyone you've ever known. You'll begin to realize that every virtue you've seen in any other human being is only a pale reflection of the heavenly father who loves you. That's why Solomon said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But I don't know if you noticed the previous six verses. Before Solomon spoke of God, Proverbs 1 verse 7 is the foundation, the anchor point, and the direction of the entire book. In the first six verses, Solomon spoke at length of certain kinds of people receiving wisdom Not initially from God, but from other people. Other, older, wiser people than themselves. Let me read it to you again and you'll notice it. The Proverbs are, verse 2, to know wisdom and instruction. To understand words of insight. In other words, someone has wisdom. Someone can instruct you. Someone can give you insight, but it's not you. To receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. Someone is speaking, someone is instructing, someone is imparting, someone is giving, and all these people are learning. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. In other words, when the wise speak to you, it may in the beginning seem like a riddle to you. You may not understand that they're telling you the truth. You might have to ponder and ask what they mean before the light dawns on you. Now, I've recommended to you that you read the proverb of the month. I want to show you a simple way to study the proverb that you're reading. We're going to do it a little bit here together. Here's the question. 
According to the verses I just read to you in Proverbs 1 through Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, what kind of people can benefit from wisdom? I'm sorry, I didn't pick that up. You all spoke at once. Let's try to be a little bit more organized. What's the first group? The simple. Who are they? Anybody have a synonym or a different translation? Who are the simple? Simple is you as a two-year-old. You're not dumb. You just don't know. You're uninstructed. You're uninformed. The Proverbs give prudence to the simple, to people who are merely ignorant. When I say ignorant, I'm using it in the true sense of the word. It's not an insult. Ignorant literally means that you don't know. I'm ignorant of most things. I actually don't know much. The Bible says that wisdom, the Proverbs can give me ignorant of wisdom. It can instruct me. What's the second group? Knowledge and discretion too to the youth. And that's countercultural right there. Because America, like no other culture in human history, has created an upside-down culture where youth is esteemed more than age. And everybody wants to be young. And many people are doing all kinds of things to themselves to appear young. To foster this false idea that youth is, well, we've even got a store. It's called Forever. Forever 21. You can be, no, no, you can't. You can be 21 for exactly one year. That's it. That's all you get. You're 20 the year before that and 22 the year after. There is no Forever 21. The Bible says from the beginning, please listen to me, young people. It will give you knowledge and discretion. In other words, it will give you truth about life and discretion. In other words, the wise knowledge of how to apply it. What's the third group that can benefit from wisdom? Let the wise. Now that's interesting. Why would the wise need wisdom? Verse 5 tells you, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands, obtain guidance. As you read Proverbs, let me alert you to a dynamic that's going to happen over and over again. Sometimes you will read a proverb and you will say, I don't get it. I don't see the point. And that is the point. That is an invitation for you to slow down, study carefully, read in another translation, Look it up in a Bible commentary, and I'm happy to send you all the Bible study tools um, you would ever need. Maybe even ask someone, I don't understand what this is saying. Proverbs are very, very interesting because to unlock their wisdom, you need to grow in wisdom already. Now, who is not mentioned? Who needs wisdom more than anybody? Fools do. They don't benefit from it. Did you notice? Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What's it say? Fools what? Despise wisdom and instruction. The one group that Solomon warns and announces will not benefit from anything he has to tell them are people who are already settled in their foolishness. What am I trying to tell you? This is the point. Wisdom comes always from others. It begins with the God who made you. It continues and grows through godly, wiser people that he will place in your life and that sometimes you will have to seek out. If you are not learning, if you are not growing, if you are not changing, if you are not receiving insight, if you, not, if you do not continually have guidance, if you can't appreciably tell in the matter over time, in say six months, that you are more prudent, that you have more discretion than you used to, you're only listening to yourself. You've created a little tribe, maybe through Spotify, maybe through YouTube, maybe through podcasts. You've created a little tribe of people that only sound like you, that only say things to you that you already know, that you already enjoy. Wisdom is harder to gain than ever in our society because the rate of information in this world is exploding. 
No one in the world can keep up with the pace of information that is readily available. It doubles in size on a regular basis. We need miracles of technology like search engines such as Google to even begin to index it and categorize it. And even then, really only the first page is ever looked at. As much information as we're gaining, we're growing no wiser. And here's the measure of real wisdom according to Solomon. If, in fact, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and fools despise wisdom and instruction, if your awe and love for God is not growing, you are not becoming wiser. Say it again. If over the past year, this year that has lasted five years, can't believe it's going to be 2022, I'm still pondering 2019, If over this time, if all you've been through, if in all of that, your awe and love for God, your reverence for Him, what you think of Him, how much you admire Him, if that is not grown, you may be coming more knowledgeable, you may have become more skilled, but you are not growing wiser. Wisdom always comes from others, first from the Lord and then from other wiser, godly people. Let's keep reading verse 8. Now Solomon is going, having dedicated his book and introduced it, warned that only people who want to listen to him can possibly benefit from what he has to tell them. He's speaking to all of Israel, but now his tone changes. He's speaking to the whole nation For the last 3,000 years, he's been speaking to all of God's people, but he has a much smaller, much more personal audience in mind first. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Let's start with that last verse because it's the hardest to understand. What is a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck? Those are ancient symbols of victory. The closest thing we have in our world is an Olympic athlete receiving a gold medal at the top of the podium. I believe one year when the Olympics were in Greece, they actually gave them the famous wreath on the head in addition to the medal. Those athletes walk off the podium, walk into the locker room, and they are wearing things to tell all the others, I won. I'm the champion. We all bled for this. We all sweat for this. We all wept toward this day. But I won. That's what Solomon says will come from his instruction and his son's mother's teaching. Please hear that. Here's the point. The primary responsibility to form wise and godly people belongs to the family. Please hear the wealthiest, most powerful man in the world writing down wisdom for millennia. This wisdom will endure until Jesus returns. But please hear this great, wise, wealthy, powerful man saying, come here, son. Come a little closer. Listen, I'm going to instruct you. Your mother's going to help. She's going to teach you as well. Son, please always listen to me. Son, when you're older and you're no longer in our home, you're no longer under our side every day, you're going to have faculties and power and money and friends of your own that are going to invite you into other ways. Please, when you're old enough to make your own decisions, please do not forsake my instruction. Don't forget what your mother told you. Hear, my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. Son, if you listen to us, you'll be a champion in life. All kinds of people are going to talk to you about success and winning and being the person that you can be and getting the prominence and the recognition and the money and the fame and the prestige that you desire. All that you want can be found in what your mother and I have to tell you. He's warning him about the people who will speak to him next. Look in verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. First, practical and direct instruction. And it's given. 
Not merely by an inspired man to the nation of Israel. It's given from a father to a son. You're given the privilege to overhear what Solomon says to his boy. Come here, buddy. Listen, it's all great. You love us. We love having you here. Life is very good right now. But you won't be seven-year-old forever. When you're 18, when you're 20, sinners will entice you. Son, do not consent to them. He's very, very practical. In fact, he's practical to the point of imagining violence. Look in verse 11. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. What does that sound like to you? Tell you what it sounds like to me. Something I dealt with in my early years of ministry here. That sounds like a street gang to me. See, the first few years of the ministry here when I was a college student and just one more young kid attending the church, I gave the first years of my ministry life to the neighborhood right across the street that we now call Oakview Community. There we had some wannabe gangbangers that styled themselves the South Side Gang. This is long before Huntington Beach put a substation in the middle of that neighborhood. There was open prostitution and drug dealing so brash that I often got chased down the street. I was being chased not to do me any harm, but because they wanted to sell me cocaine marijuana. Hard neighborhood to get into. I was the only guy that looked like I do going into that neighborhood that wasn't trying to purchase drugs. That was part of the confusion. These words from Solomon, come with us. We'll take advantage of them. We'll ambush them. We'll take what they have. We'll fill our houses with plunder. We'll all have one common bag and we'll share equally in what our crime gives us. That all sounds like street crime to me. And you may be privileged and blessed to have no idea what it's like to deal with with that life. You're fortunate enough to live in coastal Orange County. Probably not a part of your life. Why is Solomon immediately concerned with actual violence and murder encroaching on the life of his son for this reason. It has characterized the life of his nation forever. Solomon can remember that the only reason Solomon lives in peace is because David was a bloody man who subdued his enemies not with words but with a sword. Solomon is mindful that the peace that he enjoys is always lurking as the characteristic sin of Israel that can engulf even his own children. In other words, wise parents are wise enough to know the very temptations that will lurk for their children and they speak directly against them. They imagine and they know what it will be like, verse 10, when sinners entice their children. They know specifically what to tell them not to consent to. And if like my children, you've never known anything about the gang life except maybe in a video or a, or a video game, praise the Lord for that. But violence of some kind, crime, criminality, betrayal, fraud, that is always lurking in the life of your children. If you ask American students what they want to do with their lives, almost 100% of them give the same answer. They all want to make a lot of money. Seldom do they speak about significance. Seldom do they speak about making a difference. That comes usually later in their 20s when they have a little money and begin to realize that there's no end to it and there will never be money enough to satisfy what their soul actually craves. Parents need to have the wisdom to know exactly what to caution their children about because, listen, the other voices that will entice your children, young people, the voices that are enticing you, they never quit. They will never stop. And in our age, you don't even have to meet people to be enticed away from God. 
You can listen to all of that on a podcast. You can watch YouTube. You can bring through the magic of your earbuds a whole world of evil or righteousness and craft your playlist exactly to the kinds of things that will appeal to you. And the warning of Proverbs is this, wherever righteousness and justity and the equity of wisdom do not prevail, violence will always take its place. Listen, parents, the primary responsibility to form wise and godly people belong to you. Look again, please, in verse 8 and verse 9. Hear, my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. Parents, I'm pleading with you this morning to lead your children and to teach them because wisdom is literally the difference between life and death. Keep reading with me, please. Verse 15, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths for their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. Here's a word picture you'll need to decipher. In vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. You'll say what? You get it? What does it mean? Very simple picture before he makes his earthly point. If you make a trap very obvious to an animal, including a bird, he'll never fall into it. It has to be, traps have to be hidden. What are you driving at, Solomon? Listen, verse 18 and 19. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. That was a long time ago, but these young people that I met in the Oakview community all those years ago, every single one of them who involved themselves in the gang life, except for the precious few who Jesus rescued, only had two destinations, prison and the morgue. The shortcuts that the dealers on the street were promising them turned out to be ambushes against their own lives. Solomon is saying, listen, you'll never catch a bird if you make the trap very obvious, but these men are more ignorant than animals. They're setting an ambush for their own lives. Now, parents, again, by God's grace, if somehow God has brought you into a community like this, I know there's people from everywhere, and we have people here who have been in gangs, been in prison, all the way to law enforcement. We have the widest spectrum of people I've ever pastored. But I would imagine that for the vast majority of you, the reality of street violence is something you will only see on TV. Praise God for that. That is a blessing to you. But hold on to the warning in the last verse. The ways, such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Anybody who sets out against righteousness, against justice, and against equity, which is what wisdom wants for them, they will always set a trap to destroy their own lives. And if you don't do it with violence, you may surrender your own integrity in business. You may wound your conscience in front of your children and ruin your reputation with them so that in your old age you have no credibility to instruct them. You may make the kinds of decisions that make you walk away from a marriage, abandon a family, and neglect your children all in pursuit of unjust gain. It doesn't have to be violence. The desire for money, Paul warns Timothy, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and it will lead you into all kind of disaster. And the point of this entire passage is to warn children that wisdom is the difference between life and death. And parents, wisdom begins with your relationship with God faithfully taught to your kids. Please hear me on this. It might be the most important thing I tell you all day. I need you to hear again the inspired king of Israel saying in verse 8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction and forsake not your mother's teaching. This whole book is for you, son. I'm ruling over Israel, but I want you to hear me. Sinners will come and entice you. Do not consent. 
Don't put a foot on their path. You don't know where it will lead you. They may lead you into community. They may lead you into excitement. They may lead you into money, never knowing that the whole time they're setting a trap for their own lives. And it's the parent's responsibility to lay these things in front of your children. I'll say it again. Wisdom begins with your relationship with God. Mom and dad, where you have such fear and such reverence for the Lord that you rest in God, that you grow in God, that you are humbled by your relationship with God, that you desire to hear from God, that you desire to give God your burdens, and from that relationship you open up all of that life to your kids, and you, please hear me, you teach them. You instruct them. You beg them, even in your old age, not to forsake the things that God has delivered to you to share with them. Why am I this pumped up about it? Because something that has always been in the heart of the American family in my lifetime has accelerated during the pandemic. Where parents, due to their own stress, their own crisis, their own pressure, have almost completely taken their hands off their kids. They've surrendered them to screens and friends not knowing what the influence may be and where those screens and where those friends may actually take them. That can happen to any one of us, whatever safeguards we put up, no matter how much we love our children, anything could happen to anyone in a fallen world. Imagine the danger they're in if we don't even try. Imagine the danger that will befall them if we're not instructing with them, if we're not instructing them and pleading them. It's a hard thing to say because my family's in the room. But if studying this chapter has taught me one thing, it's that I've relaxed my grip a little bit too much because my sons are grown. One's fully launched halfway around the world. The other one's almost completely done with college and a very difficult major. And reading this verse in Proverbs woke me up. I need to be more deliberate. I need to take the time I have and the things that God has taught me and be more purposeful, more insistent, more diligent, more patient, more loving, more faithful to teach them. If I won't, who will? It really is their mom and I. That's God's plan by God's design. It is the family that is the locus, the center, the nest, the greenhouse, the source of his wisdom in the heart of the mom and dad who love him, transmitted to their children to diligently teach them, as Paul would later tell the Ephesians, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Here's what I've heard more and more since the pandemic regarding teaching kids the ways of the Lord, regarding bringing them to worship and involving them in the things of Jesus. Parents will say, well-meaning, sincere parents will say, I'm just going to let them make up their own mind. Really? About eternal matters? About the things that matter most? You're going to let them make up their own mind about the one true God who is there, who is holy and just and righteous? That's the thing you've decided to surrender to their discretion? You don't feel that way about taking them to the dentist. They don't have a choice of whether to go to school. Parents, American parents are prone to involve themselves in every kind of detail of their kids' lives. I've seen grown men make a fool of themselves at little league games. So much do they care about the way their son holds a bat. Ask him about something that is of eternal importance. He has no answers. Parents, I'm pleading with you. Wisdom begins with your relationship with God. Faithfully taught to your kids. And here's the offer. Some of you are not faithfully teaching your children because candidly you're not quite sure how to do it. You don't know where to start. That's okay. That is perfectly okay. We will start with you as a church family exactly where you are. If you don't know how to explain to your children what it means to be a Christian, how to be sure that their sins are forgiven, I will teach you that any day of the week at any hour that is convenient or necessary for you. That's why the church exists. 
to give you a vibrant, loving, faithful relationship with Jesus. And then keeping you one step ahead of your kids, you take that home and you teach it to them. Generation upon generation, godliness can grow. The irony, the folly of the American dream is we all want our kids to do better financially than we did. That's literally the American dream, that my children will have it easier than I did. What about their spiritual lives? Have you seen how we're doing as a country? Does it appear to you that they will be spiritually richer than we have been? Probably not. Which is why I'm pleading with you, and I'll make you an offer right now. If you need help, if you don't know where to start, take the card that's in your bulletin, fill that out for us, and let us know, hey, I need help. I'm a new Christian. I haven't been paying much attention. I'm a single parent with two jobs. It doesn't matter why you need help. We literally don't care. There's no judgment, no condemnation at all. Why you need help, we just want to give it to you because we need and want to strengthen the family. If we will strengthen the family, much of what this church does will disappear. Almost all of our counseling has to do with pain and trauma and grief and sin inflicted in people, not by strangers, but by their family. We can reverse those generational disasters and begin again with you so that your children are farther ahead from you and you can have peace on your deathbed knowing that they love the Lord more than you ever dared to. Thirdly, Solomon would tell us, that anyone humble enough to seek wisdom will find it. Here's the last part of Proverbs chapter 1. Listen, this is heavy. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Here's an offer. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. In other words, wisdom says, if you want me, you can have me. I'm standing in the middle of the street calling out to people that it doesn't have to be this bad, that their lives can improve, that they can come back to God, that they can have the blessings they've been told they can only get elsewhere. But here's a severe warning. Because I have called you and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I will also, what's it say? Laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. The simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. Here's your invitation. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Listen, anyone humble enough to seek wisdom will find it. But you need to hurry because wisdom blesses those who seek her and rejects those who reject her. That is the nature of wisdom. There is a brief window of time. You don't always have another chance. There is such a time as too late. And Proverbs explicitly warns that to reject the fear of the Lord will ruin you. Wisdom is personified as a woman standing in the middle of the city saying, come and be saved. Come and be blessed. Come and grow wealthy. Come and have the blessings for yourself, for your family that you desire. And all day long, people are passing by laughing at her. And she finally turns away and stops offering. And then all the disasters she warned of come crashing on the heads of those who would not listen to the wisdom of God. And shocking, it's one of the most shocking verses and passages in the Old Testament. She laughs. 
Because now righteousness and justice are coming upon those who have ignored her, having denied and defied the fear of the Lord, now they are left, she says, to their own devices. In other words, sometimes God in judgment, all he has to do is turn you over to what you always told him you wanted. Your choice is always between pride and wisdom. That's why wisdom is so hard. That's why information is so easy to gain and wisdom so difficult because it always requires humbling yourself to listen to God and listen to others. Three very simple commitments to cultivate wisdom. Here's the first. Be determined to receive instruction and correction from God and godly people. Be determined, not just open, be determined. Seek instruction and seek correction out from the Lord and godly people. Open your Bible every morning, assuming that you not only learn and pile up knowledge, that you will be corrected. That something in your character or your behavior will be exposed and laid open by God, not to harm you, but to get you back on the path. Proverbs says there at the end, the complacency of fools destroys them. In other words, you don't have to be openly rebellious to ruin your life. All you have to do is be self-satisfied. All you have to do is say, I've arrived. I've learned enough. I'm close enough to the Lord. At that moment, you set your, path, you set your foot on the path of foolishness. Number two, make your family your first responsibility in wisdom. Please, I'm, I'm begging you. I'm not too proud to beg. If you need help with your family, mom and dad... We just want to help you. We want to get you one or two or three steps ahead of your kids. We want you to learn how to read the Bible and teach them the basics of the Christian faith. Teach them the character and the life of Jesus so that they will replicate it in your own lifetime. And thirdly, and the hardest thing of all to hear, constantly check your own pride because it can only make you act like a fool. If anyone walks away from this sermon... Saying, boy, I hope they heard that. <laughs> you probably misheard it for yourself. I've been corrected. I've been convicted. I had a pretty solemn morning this morning. Looking over Proverbs chapter 1 and reading Proverbs 14. God has indicated to me the changes I need to make. I pray that he will do the same to you. Anyone who wants wisdom can have it. But only if they will humbly seek the Lord. Let's pray together.